Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. Beginnings are an interesting thing. We all know this because we've all started new things, probably several, or maybe even hundreds. We've all set out on new jobs, looked for new homes, moved into these new homes, made new friendships, or even moved to new places in the world. The beginning can be frightening and overwhelming. The beginning can be exciting and hope-filled. I remember when I started college, I was just some kid from rural Maine, though I never considered Maine to be particularly rural until I experienced the world outside of it. Much to my surprise, there is a world outside of Maine. And I became aware of the fact that even though I lived merely 30 minutes outside of the largest city at 60,000 people, we would be considered by r- rural by most American standards. Like all good Mainers, I went to bed at 9 p.m. and woke up at the crack of dawn, or in the winter well before the sun rose. My life in that respect was simple. But college was different. For the first time, I was around people who stayed up past nine. I had, the, I had the freedom to explore, the ability to walk around campus whenever I pleased. It was new. It was exciting, and perhaps, if I'm honest, just a bit frightening. Beginnings and change have a propensity to stir in us great emotion. I suspect you all know what I mean by that, for we have all started something new. And so what is it that Mark means when he writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Is he simply saying, I'm starting to write about Jesus? Or are his words choices more significant than this? The saint is saying, this is the start of something new. Gather round, my friends, as I tell you the story of our God who became man, who emptied himself and dwelt among us, not simply for some experience, but in order to set the captives free and to usher in a new way, a new covenant, open the heavens so all who would believe would be able to have fellowship with the Father, so all who would believe would be freed from their sins. And so... At the center of the gospel, according to St. Mark, at the center of our gospel reading this morning, stands this very thesis, that Christ has come into the world to enact a new covenant. Now this this word, gospel, has become commonplace in our Christian vocabulary. On our table sits the gospel book. That is the book that the words of the four evangelists are written in. We know that the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. We say that I am reading the Gospel according to St. Mark right now, or perhaps that I am telling my friend about the Gospel. And these are all very good things. But we've lost the meaning of the word at times. I have found from time to time it sort of becomes this ill-defined thing. But the Gospel means good news. But more than good news... It means good news about victory in war, or rather, 
that is, how it was used in the secular context at the time of the Gospels, and even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, referred to as the Septuagint. And what is this good news of victory over? It is Christ's victory for us over sin. For even in this moment that St. Mark is describing Christ, he is already on the path of victory. We read in Revelation of, the Revelation of St. John that in the last great battle, Jesus rides out to war and he is dressed in victory clothing. Already as Christ commences his public ministry, is victory confirmed. Already, even as we read this morning, he is turning his face towards Calvary. Already he is, he is taking upon himself the pain and anxiety, the horribleness of sin, to die, the, to die for them that we might live. Already in the beginning, his victory is being declared. But it is not merely at Christ's birth or at the beginning of this public ministry that his victory is proclaimed. Even as we read the horror of the fall in Genesis 3, read of the betrayal of Adam and Eve against God, we read the description, when we read the description of the serpent against our first parents, we read of the shame, the heartache, and already, even then, God promises one who will crush the head of the serpent, a son of Eve who will come or will overcome this sin. Already at the fall, God has the plan of redemption, and then this promised redemption is promised again and again in the Old Testament and foreshadowed through men whom God had chosen. St. Mark knows this and pulls not just from Isaiah, as the text says, but several places to point that God, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that prophecies and foreshadowing all point to him, and that John the Baptist is his necessary forerunner, the one who is, doing, is laying the groundwork, laying the foundation, preparing the way for the coming of Christ into his public ministry. St. Mark points this, that this, what we are reading is the beginning of a new thing. This is the beginning of the good news finally fully unveiled to humanity. St. Mark also shows through his description of John that John, by describing John in Echoes of Second Kings, where we meet Elijah, the prophet. And Elijah and John are described as wearing a garment of hair, with, belt, with a belt of leather, leather around his waist. In this, we are meant to understand that John was the second Elijah who must come to prepare the way for Christ. In all this, John foreshadows the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For we cannot come to Christ on our own. No, we need the Holy Spirit to make straight the highways of our hearts. We need the Holy Spirit to make our hearts new. We need the Holy Spirit to draw us to Christ again and again. So as John the Baptist preaches the repentance for the forgiveness of sins, likewise the Holy Spirit repent, prompts us to repent both when we meet Christ for the first time and over and over 
again. He calls us to die daily to ourselves, that we may be forgiven of our sins, that we may rest with joy in Christ. This is the beginning of the new thing. But just as many went out to hear John, and many were baptized, we are warned in our knowledge of the life in Christ, that few stood by Christ in his death. Perhaps only one disciple, his mother, and a handful of women. So a full church does not guarantee a church full of converted hearts. Rather, each of us are called to give our hearts and minds and bodies and souls over to God, that in Christ we may be drawn nearer to him. This is our daily task. It is a good task. It is a task for the rest of our lives. To follow Christ is not a religion of work. It is not something that we earn. It is not our hearts being, it is our hearts being turned into a new creation by the grace we find in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus the success of a church is not measured by bodies, but by changed hearts. It is measured by those being sanctified. And so we like our metrics to tell us how we are doing. But in the church, we do not have that privilege. Instead, we as Christians are called to do the hard thing. We are called to have hard conversations. We are called to stay up late with, at night with those who are grieving, to hold the hand of the dying, to love the different, to seek to make Christ known in all times and in all places. We don't like this always. We want things to be black and white. We want simple answers. I remember one day in class, I was, talk, take, I was taking a tough subject in contemporary moral issues came up. And the question we were trying to struggle with is how do we minister well with people who struggle with this area? We started to talk about this when somebody raised their hands and asked, is it sin? I think we all would have agreed that there was sin in what we were talking about. It comes out of the fall. But that wasn't the question at hand. The question was, how do we love that person who is struggling with it, with the darkness of their own soul? We want to sidestep the often messy answer and put them into a simple box like good or bad. But this doesn't teach us how to love others well. It puts up walls for us, and therefore it is hard for us to love and nurture those who are struggling. No, this morning we read about the beginning of the gospel of love. Not that we affirm all things, but we welcome all people. We do not accept all actions, but we know that all are capable of growth in Christ. And because his grace is sufficient for my sins, it is more than sufficient enough for the other's darkest of sins. It is easy to ban those who aren't like us or to welcome all and never call them to change. But it is much harder to walk with somebody in the darkness of their struggle, to help them gain freedom from their sin and to have abundant life in Christ. Legalism and license are easy, but sanctification is the better way. Today we see the beginning of the new way, new covenant, a new covenant, a new hope in Christ, a covenant of conversion, of changed lives, of messy times to draw into a deeper life. 
as we read on, we see John's promise that there is someone greater coming, someone who will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was a rare gift reserved for the prophets and the writers of Scripture. But in the New, he is given freely to all who believe in Christ. Often, we hear a mischaracterization of corporate worship, that there has to be some sort of experience. But we know from a verse from the hand of St. Matthew that where there are two or three gathered together in my name, that is in Christ's name, I am there. We know this because we read this whenever we pray morning and evening prayer. But it reminds us that even when we are struggling with depression, (coughs) disappointment, or disillusionment, that when we gather together to worship and pray in the name of Christ, that Christ is with us. We know that when we come to Christ, when we are baptized, when we are confirmed, when we partake in the sacraments, we have an outward reminder of the giving of the Holy Spirit. No, our emotions are important and worthy of listening to, but ultimately our emotions do not always reflect the deep abounding love that God has for us. And in that, they can betray and mislead us. We experience worship and sometimes it feels good, but even when we are tired, in our formal worship, time of worship, even if we feel like it's an off day, even if the priest stumbles his way through the liturgy, or the music is off, or your neighbor is smelly, or you just had a fight with your spouse, the Spirit is still with us. We, we do this great act of worship. That is the blessing and joy of the new covenant. The narrative then shifts its focus dramatically from John the Baptist to Jesus. No longer is John the subject, but he becomes a passive actor in this drama that is about to unfold. The text marks this by describing Jesus' baptism in passive voice. John does not baptize Jesus, but Jesus is baptized by John. Perhaps this seems insignificant, but John's significant ministry becomes overshadowed by Jesus. As we read the rest of the gospel according to St. Mark, we only see a couple more minor, almost parenthetical statements about John. This begins Jesus' baptism, and John acts as a servant, as a tool, and not as the primary person. But why was Jesus baptized? We are told John's was a baptism of repentance and sin, of sin, a turning away, a literal shifting of mind into the perspective of the world around it. And yet we confess that Jesus was without sin, was perfect, and was spotless. Are we wrong? Are we delusional? Certainly not. Jesus was without sin. Jesus' baptism marks something else. Jesus' baptism is the beginning of something new. It is the beginning of his ministry, a beginning of his formal proclamation of Christ who ushers in a new ethos, a new way, a new covenant, and the opening of the door for our participation in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' baptism rather marks the beginning of his formal ministry. The first thing happens as he comes out of the water. And the heavens are torn open, torn open. 
of the Gospels, St. Mark's words are the most aggressive in how he describes this fact. In fact, he uses the same word that he uses when he describes the temple court curtain being torn open at Christ's crucifixion. He links these two moments together as being fundamentally important in Christ's ushering in of the new. He links these two moments in pointing out the fact that in Christ, we find intimacy with the Father, that we can now experience the glory of God in a way that we never could before. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and we hear the voice from heaven, and here we see the Trinity revealed to us. What an amazing thing this is. For God sent his incarnate son to redeem those who would believe in himself. And he sends the spirit to direct and guide while he is enthroned in perfect and beautiful majesty. Like Jesus' baptism, we may wonder why Christ could possibly need the Holy Spirit. But it shows for us that Christ was perfectly obedient to the Father. Where we are rebellious children, he is the perfect child. And in him... We may become children of the Father. In him we may know the same fatherly love that says, You are my beloved son. You are my beloved child. And what good news this is. Finally, the Father tells Jesus that he is well pleased in him. But the other, other translations occasionally prefer that the Father delights in Jesus. I find this later translation a little more preferable, as it captures something wonderful. I think that we long so deeply to hear from others that they delight in us, that we have something wonderful and worthy of being excited about, that we can be swept away with the awe of God, that the Father delights in the Son. But why does the Father delight in his Son, Jesus Christ? These are a few that some have noted. The Father delights in the Son because he became a man, that is, he became incarnate. He delights in the Son because of his perfect obedience. He delights in the Son because he fulfills the law. He delights in the Son because he is patient. He delights in the Son because of his humility. He delights in the Son because of his sinlessness. He delights in the Son because of his broke, because of his love for broken, the broken and the sinners. He delights in the Son because of the defeat of the devil. He delights in his Son because of his defeat of death, his willingness to die for his sheep, and his ability to keep his sheep well. And this list is far from exhaustive, but perhaps because of no other thing, the Father delights in his Son because of his redemption of sinners like me. And thus, his Father is delighted. And this is ultimately what St. Mark is pointing to when he writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption. In Jesus Christ, we have freedom. In Jesus Christ, the new covenant is open to all who would believe in him. And we find incredible, incredible freedom. Beginnings can be exciting or scary. They can be overwhelming or joy-filled. But what we read this morning is the beginning. 
the beginning of something new, the beginning that stands as the most significant new beginning, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, and the beginning of the end of the tyranny of sin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.